Welcome to the sermons and teachings from the Catalyst Fellowship with Ipai Michael. We hope the message you're about to listen to will edify you and cause you to experience exponential growth. And now, the message. Bibles with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Just a light note of warning. You have to have your thinking caps on today and be ready for the word of God. Amen. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Are you all there? All right, let's read together. One, two, go. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Doctrine for what? Reproof for what? Correction for what? Instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hallelujah. Well, who is speaking here? The apostle Paul is speaking to who? to Timothy and he says that from a child Timothy has known the Holy Scriptures. The word or the phrase Holy Scripture there is from two words Hieros, H-I-E-R-O-S and the second is grammar G-R-A-M-M-A What's the first one? Hieros, H-I-E-R-O-S and the second one is what? Alright, what does Hieros mean? Hieros means sacred consecrated all right something that is separated to god what does grammar mean grammar means writing or a letter the word grammar is gotten from the word grapho grapho also means an engraved writing hallelujah so if we're going to understand what the word grapho means or what the word grammar means we're going to have to look at how it was used in scriptures. Amen. This is a simple, you know, rule when you're trying to understand words in scriptures. Check how the word is used in scriptures and then you're going to be able to understand it. Amen. So let's look at a few places where the word grapho was used. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 5. So he says, they said, to, he, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is grapho by the prophets. It is written, you see, the word written there is the word grapho. So what were they talking about that was written? Well, they were talking about a prophecy. Where is this prophecy located? Old or New Testament? Old Testament. So what is written is the information in the Old Testament. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Let's go to Matthew chapter 4 verse 4. It is written. So it is written that what? Man shall not live by bread alone. Where is it written? In the script, where is scriptures? What scripture? Old Testament. So, what is written is referring to where? Old Testament. Luke chapter 4, verse 17. You see, what was written? The, te- the things that Isaiah said, right? He was given the book of Isaiah. So, when he talks about what was written, what is, what is he talking about again? Old Testament. What is he talking about again? Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Alright, so. It is written. Where was it written? So now, when we put together the word, we see it as what? Sacred writing. How do we know what sacred writing is? Well, this already begins to prove to you that sacred, sacred writing is talking about what? 
Old Testament. Does this make sense? Let me give you further proof that second writing is not about Old Testament. Well, in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus was speaking to the guys on the way to Emmaus. They were disciples. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the words, graphe. So in all the words in your Bible, scripture. The word scripture there is interpreted graphe, which is similar to grapho. Are you getting what I'm saying? So, in all the scripture, so beginning, he says, he expanded to him the things concerning himself. Beginning from where? Moses and all the prophets. What does Moses and all the prophets mean? The Old Testament canon. What are the books of Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five books. And where does the prophet end? Malachi, the last book. So, he's talking about the canon of the Old Testament. So, Jesus used scripture, used graphe writing to refer to what as well? Old Testament. So let's go back to what Paul was saying to Timothy. He says, when, when Paul then says to Timothy, you've known the Hieros grammar or the Holy Scriptures. What is he calling Holy Scriptures there? Old Testament. Is everybody convinced? Is everybody convinced? Great. So, he says, you've known the Old Testament sacred writings and he says, he implied that Timothy knew this. And the reason why he would imply that Timothy knew this is because typically Jewish children would memorize the Torah at a very young age. They would sort of know almost the whole of the Old Testament at a very young age. And so he says, you've known it, but then he says something. He says, it is going to make you wise unto salvation by faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Was Jesus mentioned in the Old Testament? No, so why then is Paul saying, the Christ was mentioned, but the name Jesus was not mentioned? Except his the prophecy of his birth. So how then is it? How then is the Old Testament going to give you wisdom about salvation by faith, which is in Christ Jesus? But what Paul is saying is that Timothy, when you read the Old Testament, you're going to receive wisdom. Meaning to us as well, the reading of the Old Testament brings wisdom. What type of wisdom? Wisdom about salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. Are you getting what I'm saying? I've taught you before that the central theme of the Bible is what? So the central theme of the Bible is Jesus and the salvation plan. You're correct on both because Jesus brought salvation, right? So the central theme of the Bible is Jesus. Meaning that, you know, Jesus was talking to the, to the Pharisees. He says, you pour through scriptures. In them you think you find eternal life. They are they which testify of who? Of me. So Jesus is saying, when you read the Old Testament, I'm there. Paul is telling Timothy that when you read the Old Testament as well, you will gain wisdom about salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, be careful about this as well. Because it will be an erroneous teaching to then think that every single part of the Old Testament has a deeper meaning about Christ in it. No. That's not what he's saying. Meaning that you are looking for Christ in Psalms of Solomon. No. Meaning that Goliath and David were fighting. I said Jesus is the rock. No. You have to be careful. That is called an allegorical interpretation. I'm going to teach you on Saturday. But that's called an allegorical school of thoughts to read in the Bible where you think that every single part of the Bible is a shadow of something else or is a symbol or has a hidden meaning. That's a wrong approach to reading the Bible. We subscribe to a literal approach, meaning we take everything as literal unless when it is clearly figurative or it is implied that it's figurative. Meaning that we read the books with respect to this style of writing. 
if I'm reading Psalms, I can understand that it's, 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 it's going to use poems and it's going to communicate it in, you know, in symbols. If I'm reading Genesis, I'm reading, let me not say Genesis, let me say Exodus. Even Genesis, I know I'm reading a narrative. You see what I'm saying? If I'm reading Jeremiah, I, I know I'm reading a prophecy. So, the literal school of thought takes everything literal, unless we're clearly it's, it is figurative or it's implied that it's figurative, or at least that there's a symbol. Well, what this now ultimately means is that the central theme of the Old Testament is still Jesus. Meaning every single story might not necessarily be referencing Jesus, but the big picture of the story is themed to Jesus and the salvation plan. Does that make sense? For example, you might be reading Genesis and every single thing in Genesis is not talking about Jesus, but what you are understanding is the sin that necessitated the salvation. Are you learning something? Why salvation is needed in the first place? The fall of man. You are also seeing places where Jesus started to show them sacrifices of things to come. You see, that's how you begin to learn and then you see what connects. Well, I said all of that because we have to think about how this influences our reading of the book of Daniel. Because we've read six stories, right? Six narratives. One vision. Right? So, where is Jesus in all of this? Because if all says we get wisdom about salvation by faith, do we just think that maybe the lions are seen and then Daniel is the king? Do you get what I'm saying? So, we have to look for where Jesus fits into all of this. Well, like I also said, I've explained, I've explained this part before, so I'm just going to skip this part. So where do, where do we see Jesus in the book of Daniel? How does the book of Daniel fit into the big picture of the Bible? Well, six books we've read spoke about the common thing, in spite of present troubles, God is in control. You would not only survive, you would what? You thrive and what? Flourish. Hallelujah. So, it's been purely narrative. But then we've seen a theme two times. And that theme is that we've seen a theme that has repeatedly shown us that there will be evil kingdoms and a succession of evil kingdoms. How many of you remember that? We saw first in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What was the dream about? It starts you head of gold and then a diminishing material going down until it gets to the leg of clay and iron. So there's bronze, there's gold, there's bronze, and then, you know, it goes down, then met iron and clay. Well, what happened in the dream? An object came and destroyed everything, but he said that thing that came that destroyed everything lasted, what? Forever. Which brings us back to the, this, this particular theme we're seeing in the Bible. Now, let me explain something to you. Even though the central theme of the Bible is Jesus and the salvation plan, there are many themes in the Bible that sort of shines light to that ultimate thing. Does that make sense? There are many themes that shines light to that ultimate thing. I will explain the more you would understand. Another place we saw this particular theme I'm talking about is in Daniel 7. On Sunday we spoke about it. Right? What happened in Daniel 7? There was chaos. The beasts, they represented what? Successions of kingdoms. The next beast came after the other. Even the one with metal teeth, Robocop beast, you know, with metal feet and, you know, was was really scary. Anyways, in the end, what happened? We saw one like the Son of Man who came and was given dominion and glory and his kingdom was to last forever. What are you seeing there? 
there will be a succession of evil kingdoms but they will all fade away and ultimately there will be a kingdom that will be established a divine kingdom and that kingdom is what will last forever now this is a reference to because when when he showed the son of man he didn't call him son of man he called him more like a son of man when he showed him coming he was referencing a kingdom which is to come this is where the book of Mark and the book of Revelation borrow that phrase, Son of Man, uses to talk about Jesus. Son of Man in the New Testament means one of two things. It either means human being or it references this prophecy. So let me tell you what is going on here. This is what it ultimately means, right? Because you are going to ask, okay, so where's the wisdom about faith in Christ Jesus? Well, any Hebrew person, any Israelite that reads this story is thinking about kingdoms. There are many kingdoms, but God has a kingdom that is coming. Are you understand what I'm saying? Because He says that there's a kingdom that will be established, and one like Son of Man is going to receive that kingdom, and that's the one that's going to last forever. So now He's open, and, and they're thinking, "Oh, there's a kingdom that is coming." First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 11. First Chronicles 17:11. Everybody, I'll read it very quickly. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled. Who is speaking? God. Who is he speaking to? David. Remember David, earthly king? You know him? Okay. Good. First Chronicles 17, 11, it says, And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will be one of your sons. I would establish his kingdom. Well, God is promising David he's going to set up a seed after him. He's going to establish his kingdom. He says, he shall build me a house. Well, maybe you're thinking it's Solomon, right? Because Solomon probably built the house. But then he says, I will establish his throne forever. And like, uh, well, it could have been Solomon. Because he died. I get what I'm saying. And then in verse 13, he says, I will be his father. And he will be my son. I will not take my mercy away from him. As I took it from him who was before you, I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be what? Established forever. Well, now you are sitting under text as, an, as, as a Hebrew person, as an Israelite that there's going to be a kingdom that will last forever. There's going to be a king and he's going to be a son of David and a son of God. Well, not many people fit into that category. Then you go to Psalms. Psalm chapter 16 verse 8 and David is here singing but also Peter calls David a prophet and now in Psalm chapter 16 verse 8 the Bible says I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I shall not be moved therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices my flesh also will rest in hope verse 10 let's read together everybody wants to go for you will not leave my soul in Sheol now will you allow your Holy One to see what? Psalm 16 verse 10. Are you all there? Let's read together. One to go. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, what is he talking about? Maybe you are not sure, but Peter explains this text in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 
Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. I want you to read, to read it with me so you know you don't miss anything. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Are you all there? Alright, I'll begin to read from verse 22. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and have put to death. Verse 25, are you all there? Alright, let's read verse 25 together once to go. For David says concerning him, now wait, David is, Peter is about to quote that psalm that we read now. Now watch how he quotes it. Let's read together once to go. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. Verse 27. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You would make me full of joy in your presence. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Why is he saying that? Because in that prophecy, David said you would not allow your Holy One to see corruption, neither will you see, leave my soul in Hades. To see corruption means to be dead more than three days. It means that, you know, the body has decayed and has gone beyond normal. Sheol is the place of the dead. So what is Peter saying? He said, men and brethren, Patriarch David is dead and his tomb is with us. He has not said that. Let's read. Verse 29, I want to, verse 29, I want to go. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the Patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Remember Chronicles prophecy? That he raised up his child to sit on his throne. Verse 31. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in it. So he's saying David was not talking about himself because we have his tomb here. He was prophesying about Christ. Because Christ is the only one who did not see corruption. Neither is his soul in Hades. Well... When you look at these three prophecies, you come to only one conclusion. The one who is going to bring the kingdom that we've been hearing about has to be one who has eternal life. Because that's the only way he's going to be on the throne forever. So the moment Jesus rose from the dead, he fulfilled the prophecy, being the messianic king, being the king they've been expecting. Are you getting this? Being the king that they had been expecting for a long time. Well, the Jews thought his kingdom was earthly, so they wanted to crown him, remember? But they did not know. And his kingdom is not of this world. And so, to them, they did not understand what was going on. But he said, remember, he says, repent. The kingdom of God is nigh. They didn't know what it meant that the kingdom of God was close to them. But it meant that for everyone who got saved, they, be, they, they, they enter into God's kingdom and God reigns 
Christ reigns as king in all our hearts. So it was not an earthly kingdom. Are you getting this? If it was an earthly kingdom, it would not be forever. Are you understanding what I'm teaching you? It will not be forever. And so ultimately, when we die, we'll be like him because we'll come back to life. We'll dwell in, this, in, in, in the new Jerusalem. Are you with me? And Christ will be king. They didn't get it. They thought it was a natural normal kingdom, but all these prophecies were pointing to the one day that God is going to bring a kingdom that will last forever. Does this make sense to you? And now in this kingdom theme, there you see the plan. There you see where Jesus is revealed. Hallelujah. Those prophecies that is one of the ways at least, there are other ways. One of the ways, one of the themes in Daniel that fits into the full big picture of the Bible. Remember, the plan of God since Genesis has been to restore man when he fell. So, they tried the Lord. The Lord did not solve the problem. Judges came. They didn't solve the problem. Kings came. The kings were evil. Are you seeing this? It was because ultimately God's plan was not for human kings to be the, the, the solution. God's plan ultimately was is for us to live in a theocracy where God is king and he reigns in all our hearts as king. Does that make sense to you? Well, this is how the book of Daniel begins to fit into that full picture, picture of the Bible, you know, pointing us to the Christ which is to come. We're going to go to chapter 8, which is very similar to chapter 7, which we did last week. And we're going to be reading from the book, so I want everybody to open to Daniel chapter 8. And before we go into Daniel chapter 8, I'm going to tell you about somebody called Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm going to spell it. A-N-T-I-O-C-H-U-S. Epiphanes is E-P-I-P-H-A-N-E-S. Well, he was a king of Greco-Syria. I should spell that again. Epiphanes. E-P-I-P-H-A-N-E-S. E-P-I-P-H-A-N-E-S. Epiphanes. He was a Greco-Syria king. And his title, he picked up the title Epiphanes, which rulers in that time used to pick up aside their name. But rather than call him Epiphanes, people started calling him Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifests. Epiphanes means madman or crazy guy. Well, he earned the title of everybody calling him crazy guy because of the things he did. We thought Alexander, Alexander the Great was, was bad. He wasn't as bad as this guy. At least under Alexander the Great, he was trying to Hellenize the people. What does that mean? Impose Greek culture on them. He was trying to do that, but he still allowed cultural variations. Antiochus Epiphanes did not care about that. His goal was total. He was he was taking it to the next step to be an agent of cultural, you know, domination, as it were. I get what I'm saying. He wanted to dominate totally. So the Jews were one of his targets. All right, the Israelites were one of his targets, and his strategy of organization was to take away and take over the whole of of Jerusalem. So what he did, one of the things he did was that he took, he removed the priest, the high priest, and he replaced him with another person who was submitted to him. And that's not all he did. He made a decree 
outlawing every Jewish rite and worship and ordering Jews to worship Zeus rather than Yahweh. This is real life story. <laughs> Alright? He wasn't only just trying to Hellenize them, he was trying to eliminate every trace of Jewish culture. Are you getting what I'm saying? And yes, the Jews rebelled, but you see, he did a lot more. In an act of disrespect one time, he raided the temple in Jerusalem. He stole all the treasures and he set up an altar unto Jews in the temple. Not only did he do that, he killed swine, killed pigs on the altar. Do you know how terrible that, that would have been? The closest way to explain that is it's like taking grams of sugar and pouring it in the mouth of someone that is diabetic. It's like taking the worst thing that a person fears and rubbing it in their face in the most terrible way. Because Jews abstain from, from, from pigs. So you kill the pig. It's almost like you are doing a type of sacrifice to false God with the animal that they despise, that they call unclean in the place they call sacred. That was what he did. At least part of what he did. He slaughtered a great number of Jews. He, slaughtered, he sold a great number of them into slavery. He issued a decree that any, you know, circumcision was normal. If you circumcise the child, is punished by death. If you circumcise yourself, you die. These were rights for the Jews, you know, circumcision. He banned everything. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes was a tyrannical figure in Jewish history. He's so bad that the book of Daniel would tell us that he is a, he would show us in a way that is a shadow of the Antichrist. That's how bad he was. <laughs> That's how bad it was. That when you want to see what the Antichrist would be like, it's a, look at that because it's, it's a way, it's a pointer to, to the Antichrist. That's how bad Antiochus is. Daniel chapter 8 fits perfectly with the history of this guy who's going to desecrate the temple and persecute the people of Israel. So in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Me to me, Daniel, after that, after the one that appeared to me the first time, I saw in the vision, and it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Verse 3 says, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram. So, now, your imagination is going to have to work here. So, what did he see? I saw a ram which had what? Two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one, and the higher one came up last. Verse 4. I saw a ram, I saw the ram, that particular ram, pushing westward and northward and southward, and so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could ever deliver from his hand. And he did according to his will and became great. Now, what did I tell you horns meant from reading the previous apocalyptic vision? Horns meant what? Strength. Power. Right? What did I tell you that the beasts meant? Kingdoms. That's good. Alright? So, now there's this kingdom. In the last one, we didn't know who they were. But in this one, it's going to be different. Well, he sees a ram and that represented a kingdom. In verse 5, he says, And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Wow. 
a goat that's not touching the ground. Well, that was seeming, that was indicative of speed. Are you getting this? Indicative of speed. And the goat had a notable horn in between his eyes. Then it came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. Verse 7, it says, And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against the ram and attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So, well, one has destroyed another kingdom now. Verse 8. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in its place four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Well, this was a normal natural fight, but it's almost becoming a spiritual fight because you are fighting the host of heaven now. What verse did we stop? 11. So verse 12, it says, Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. He cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? And the giving of both the sanctuary, sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Wow. So what do we see? A ram with two horns, one higher than the other. A goat with what? One horn in between its eyes, destroying the ram, beating it to stupor. Then the one horn of this goat was broken and four horns came out of it. <laughs> Don't try to picture it. <laughs> well, it's now that one of your tries to picture it. <laughs> out of one of those four horns, a new horn grew. But that one that now grew, <laughs> it was it was a problem because you know it says it, it went towards the south, towards the east, towards the glorious land. It grew, you know, and it, it casted out even it fought. <laughs> it fought even against you know it, the Bible calls it. It cast out some of the host of heavens, anyways, and that's crazy. I get what I'm saying. Well, this time we, we get, you know, we got some interpretation because in verse, in, in verse 15, the Bible says, then, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking meaning, suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the bank of Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Well, the angel Gabriel appears to him to sort of interpret the vision to him. Unlike chapter 7 where we didn't really know and we were left speculating, you know, who is this beast supposed to represent? This one, there's, there's an angel to give an interpretation. So, verse 17 says, So he came near where I stood, and he came, and I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Verse 18. 
Now as he was speaking with me, I was in deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright and he said, Look, I'm making you known. I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram which you saw having two horns, they are what? The kings of the media and Persia. And they said, you know, he said one horn was higher than the other. Well, it was because I think it was the Persian side that was more powerful. You know, so they called them Middle Persian Kingdom. Then in verse 21, he says, the male goat is what? The kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is in between his eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in his place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with his power. Well, it's pretty much clear that this kingdom is talking about Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great actually had so much speed, probably that was why it was indicated as though his leg did not touch the floor, because he conquered really fast. And when he died, he gave his two sons, his four generals, divided his kingdom into four. Remember, the horn broke. Four horns came up. Are you getting what I'm saying? So, in verse 23, he says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, that is while these four guys are there, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. Wow, this guy is scary. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people. Wow. So now he's going to fight against the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause the seeds to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human beings. Well, this figure who is evil and a master at deceit, and who is cunning, is to be identified with Antiochus. Are you following? Are you learning something? Are you learning something? Oh, you are still writing. No, you are not learning anything. <laughs> All right, are you following everyone? All right, so Antiochus Epiphanes, he wasn't the natural head to the throne, but he took it. He was a political prisoner in Rome, and actually, when he took control, Many people believe that he even orchestrated the death of his brother to seize power because he was not probably the, he was not the next in line. Remember, the Bible says that this person will be cunning, and it says that um, he will have power, but not by his own power, meaning that he will sort of usurp authority and through cunning ways take over power. And that was what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. More of the things he did tried to undermine religious rituals of the Jews. He stopped sacrificial rituals, introduced them to the worship of Jews, or of Zeus rather. Actually, he put Zeus, the worship of Zeus in the holies of holies. According to history. <laughs> he removed the high priest of, in, from office. I told you that already. Anyone who was found with the book of covenants was killed. One time, he lost a battle and came back and just out of anger, he executed 500 Jews. That's, that's how bad it was. I feel like 
next dream or of like the, the feeling of where you know the Israelites would have been he was totally going to wipe out any trace of their, their culture and that was his goal so when you look at that part of the Bible we read that described him the Bible also says that even though he would do all these things the sanctuary shall be cleansed meaning he's also still going to be brought down and this brings us back to that same thing that the whole of, of Daniel has been showing to us that in spite of present trouble I don't think there can be trouble worse than this <laughs> well if the Bible says the sanctuary will be cleansed it says in spite of present trouble God is in control and you would not just survive you would what? thrive and you would flourish and this brings you back so as evil as Antiochus is or Antiochus <laughs> is or was you probably never heard of him before and his kingdom died with him too well history records him but it's just to show you also that there will be evil successions but God is in control are you getting what I'm saying? God is in control what do we see in this? we see number one that mankind can be very evil <laughs> suppressing the truth especially with what they don't agree and maybe the kingdoms that are fighting us today are not like those kingdoms in that time people call them governments anybody else but number two we also see that there will be deliverance and evil are you seeing this? Well, verse 26. He says, And the vision of the evening and the mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Well, it's worth it. <laughs> Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Well, we've come to the end of this chapter. Chapter 11 is going to give more explanation to this, so don't miss it. But um, let's do chapter 9 very quickly. This brings us to chapter 9. And this is the third vision after the first six story. But chapter 9 starts differently. It doesn't start with a vision. It starts with like a Bible study. So let's go to chapter 9. Let me see if I can read it in ESV. Uh, let me just stick to it. Are you all in Daniel chapter 9 verse 1? Alright, let's read together one to go. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of Medes, was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood the books, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Well, Daniel is reading Jeremiah. Just to give you a picture of what is going on here. Jeremiah is probably dead at this time. But Jeremiah would probably have been alive just before the boys were captured. Preaching on the streets of, of Jerusalem. Remember prophetic books? I told you what prophecies do. They warn them of God's judgment, inform them of several things, you know. 
that see if you don't do this this is happening. so that's probably what Jeremiah had been doing to them remember that the Bible told you know that the law said you should not worship any other God if you do it exile is coming so Daniel is studying the, the, the book the, the writings of Jeremiah and he's like okay right now it's possible that the 70 years of our exile because of what we've done you know remember what I taught you in the first part of this book God gives man autonomy man rebels against the autonomy they go on exile God is merciful. He shows them mercy. We saw this from sin, from the first sin. Man gave man autonomy, free will, in, in quote. Um, they chose wrongly, so they rebelled against God with it. They were sent out of the garden in exile, and God's mercy is that his plan is salvation. The children of Israel, the same thing, and you see that pattern on and on and on and on. But until Deuteronomy, there was a rehash of the law where God now said, you know what? don't have any other God but me. If you do it, you go to exile. <laughs> I get what I'm saying. And so Jeremiah would have been warning about it. And so that's what Daniel is reading. So if we think of where he might be reading, I think maybe Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11 because that talks about 70 years. And Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10, that also talks about the 70 years. So let's go to Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11 first. We'll read that. We'll read the second one. I just need your minds to be open at this part. Don't get tired. Are you learning something? Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 11. Is everyone there? Alright, let's read together 25 verse 11. One, two, go. And this whole land shall be in desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I would make it a perpetual desolation. Well, Jeremiah is warning them to repent unless you will save Babylon for 70 years. Well, I don't know if it's 70 literal years because there's a way counting happens when it comes to prophecies and visions. But um, the people communicate it in the best way they can, which is to count it in years. It can be 70 marks of, of, of the age you know, in whatever types of calculation it might be. It probably might have also been referenced in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10. Let's read Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. Are you all there? All right, let's read together one to go. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I would visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. So Daniel is reading and thinking probably, you know, maybe the 70 years are done. We've suffered, Lord. <laughs> We've served Babylon. They are going to deal with Babylon. So maybe it's time. Verse 3 of Daniel chapter 9. Go back to Daniel. It says, Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Now, the way he's going to pray is a model of prayer that we've seen by Nehemiah, Ezra, and I'm going to break it down, how that mode of prayer works. And one of the things you'll notice is that a lot of us have taken this mode of prayer to think it's for us, but it doesn't relate to you, you see. Well, it starts with something called an invocation and a confession. Invocation is really declaring who God is, and then a confession. So, verse 4, everybody, of Daniel chapter 9. It says, one to go, and I prayed to the Lord my God, and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, 
who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and who, with those who keep his commandments. We have seen and committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgment. Well, Daniel is not trying to say, oh, they did it, I did not do it. No. He's identifying with the sin of his forefathers because that's what brought them to exile in the first place. In verse 6, he says, Want to go? Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophet, who spoke in your name to our kings and princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day to men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you've driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. Verse 8. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness though we have rebelled against him. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he said before us by his servant, the prophets. Verse 11. Wait. Before we read 11. There's another thing we see in this prayer. And forget the big grammar, but it's called... You know what? I'll just make it simple. I'm just going to tell you. It's called the theology of Deuteronomy. You know the book of Deuteronomy. You know what theology is. So it's called the theology of Deuteronomy. That is... And what I'm going to explain is that you will see this mindset through many of the Old Testament books. And it's a, this happened on Sunday. And it's a mindset <laughs> from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, what is that mindset I'm talking about? Well, remember when Moses rehashed the law to them? He gave them something I taught you. The name of that thing was what? The Shema. Who remembers that teaching? The Shema. You don't remember where Moses came before the children of the guys that died in the wilderness and rehashed the law to them but he gave them one extra law not one extra law, he added to it and one of the things he said to them is this you shall have no the Lord your God is one you shall have no other God you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and there are like many other messages like that do you remember it? well the purpose of that law was to tell them don't serve any other God but God he is the only God in that same message was when he now told them, if you do it, exile. So that was the first warning they got, where God was telling them, if you worship another God, <laughs> exile. But there's also a caveat. And that caveat is that when they have learned their lessons and they face God and beg, restore them. That's the Deuteronomic idea I'm talking, the Deuteronomy idea I'm talking about. Now, you see it in the book of Kings. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 33. Are you all there? All right, 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 33, the Bible says, let's read together, I want to go. When your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplications to you in this temple, then here in heaven, and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Do you see that? So, they would be in exile or be defeated because of what they've done. But when they pray, Lord, 
turn back. Are you seeing that? Let's read verse 46 of that same text. Are you learning something? I hope no one is confused. Okay, good. Verse 46, are you all there? Alright, let's read together once to go. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the You see, there's no argument about it. He <laughs> said when they do it, and you take them, it's not like maybe you take them. You already know that you have said that if you take them, if they do it. So if they do it, and you take them, let's continue reading. To the land of the enemy, far on near, verse 47, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplications to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness, and when they return to you with all their hearts and with all their souls in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave their fathers. Well, this probably explains why Daniel was praying towards Jerusalem. Remember, when he opened his window and the Bible says he faced Jerusalem to pray when they said nobody should make any decree to any God except Darius. Do you remember? probably explains it. Well, it says, and when they prayed to us, their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you've chosen and the temple which you've, which I have built for your name. Verse 49, let's read together. I want to go. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgression which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance whom you have brought out out of Egypt out of the iron furnace wow well one point of note for you hear from heaven and heal our land it's not for you whose land is he healing these prayers are not for you because your land Demeter, <laughs> Ikoto, <laughs> Ogun State. This is not your land. This is not your prayer. This was their prayer. Are you getting this? On Saturday, you get. I would explain how you must read that the text of scriptures are not written. direct recipient and you must understand it with respect to the people. Because you'll be praying a wrong prayer if you say that God when I face your land, when I face the land that you gave me, you didn't give me any land. I'm a, I'm a Gentile, not a Jew. Are you getting what I'm saying? If you're a Gentile, this does not pertain to you. Amen. Alright. So Daniel is praying and not Daniel right now, the kings, right? He's saying the same way you saved us from Egypt, you know, save your people. Well, you've seen the Deuteronomic idea in it. So let's finish our, our study of Daniel. I'll explain what I wanted to explain later. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 9. We're about to read 11. Alright, let's read together. One to go. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the cause and the oath written in... You see what I'm saying? The Deuteronomy idea. The, 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 the law, the, the cause that was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us 
because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his word which he spoke against us and against our judge, our judges who judged us by bringing upon us great disaster. For under the whole of heaven, such has never been done as what has been done. Verse 13. Now, another thing is going to happen. There's going to be a statement of punishment. So let's read verse 13. Want to go? As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayers before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind, you see that punishment, and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which, is, which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And then finally, there's an appeal for help. Verse 15, one to go. And now, O oh Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Verse 16, O oh Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for our iniquities, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, this explanation, this is where the explanation is going to come. Well, he's doing the exact same thing now. He's praying that God restores them. But he does something. He references Egypt. He says, Oh God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name? So, he's referencing what we call the exodus out of Egypt, which is the salvation from exile. Are you learning something? The salvation from exile. You see that same appeal about Egypt, which makes us begin to see that there's going to be sort of like a second deliverance after the first deliverance from exile. Are you getting what I'm saying? Because out of Egypt is the first deliverance from exile. But the prophets are sort of talking about it. Daniel is saying, God, deliver us again like you delivered us from Egypt. Kings were saying, deliver us like you delivered us from what? Egypt. We read kings as well. Right? Now look at Hosea. Hosea chapter 2 verse 14. Now, who is Hosea? A prophet. What type of prophet? A demonstrative prophet. Who is a demonstrative prophet? A demonstrative prophet is somebody who's, who prophesies through his life. Let me give you an example. Agabus. Paul was going to go to Jerusalem. Agabus took a belt and tied it on his hand. And says, if you go to Jerusalem, this is how, <laughs> this is all we have put you. <laughs> You'll be bound. Well, Hosea's life is a picture of the relationship between God and Israel. You know Hosea? He married a prostitute. Well, prostitute was used because Israel kept on going to other gods. After he wooed her, he allured her, that's the KJV word. He allured her, brought her to his house. She left him and went back to the streets. <laughs> then God said, go back to her and woo her again. So, what is God showing you? That he always came back from for Israel, even though he always went back to other gods. Are you learning something? So, in Hosea chapter 2 verse 14, are you all in 14? Let's read together. I want to go. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. 
I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of An of Akor as a door of hope. She shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. Well, he's talking about the girl that left Egypt, but we also know he's talking about Israel that left Egypt. So what is going on in the book of Hosea is that there is some figurative expression, some symbol where Hosea is a symbol, a type of God and the harlot is a type of Israel. A symbol for, for Israel. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So, the relationship between Hosea and the harlot is typifying God's relationship with Israel. So even though Hosea's story is a real narrative of something that really happened to somebody, it is pointing to another real story which is happening between God and Israel. Are you getting this? And the story is so uniform that even she was saved from Egypt the same way Israel was saved from Egypt. Does that make sense? Let's read that last part again. Verse 15, everybody. Want to go. I will give her, vine, her vineyards from there and the valley of Akor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from... Do you get it? The prostitute actually came up from the land of Egypt. But it's also telling a story of the salvation of Israel from Egypt. Are you getting this? So... It's almost looking like, you know what? He has to go and woo her again, even though she has left Egypt before. Similar to Israel, almost like God has to deliver them again, even though they've been delivered from Egypt the first time. Hey, does this make sense to everybody? Good. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Now, this is where I tie everything together. And I think this is why it's good that this is the second time I'm teaching it, because where they didn't understand <laughs> the first time I was teaching it, I would make sure that you understand Alright, so Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. Alright, read with me, one, two, go. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has what? Well, what warfare do you think they're talking about? Exactly, their time in exile. Is that clear? Their time in exile. It says that her iniquity is what? Pardon. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for what? Now verse 3 is very important. Let's read verse 3 together. One to go. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Does this sound familiar? Read it again. Does this sound familiar? If I tell you, you will not get it. If you figure it out yourself, it will make my next explanation easy. Have you, read, have you heard this before? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. The right Luke uses this to talk about the preparation for Jesus. John the Baptist. Do you remember? Well... This is a narrative and this is a prophecy. This is a, a, something that was spoken to Israel. But then Luke takes it and says, you know what? It is not just only about Israel. 
He's talking about the coming Christ. How does this connect? Pay attention now. It connects this way. Remember that there was sin and there was exile. So exile is going to be the, re the, the repercussion of sin. And every sin that they committed later is a reference to that first sin that needs to be solved. Are you getting what I'm saying? So every time they sinned, they were sent to exile. But exile was not the solution to the sin problem. Are you getting this? Exile was not the solution to the sin problem. They would sin. They would go on exile, but they would sin again. They would sin. They would go on exile. God would have mercy on them, but they would sin again. The law came. It didn't solve the problem. They still went back to sin. Are you getting this? King judges came. It, they didn't solve the problem. They still went back to sin. They promised Joshua we will not do it again. They still did it. Amen. Then God sent them. So ultimately, all these things will not solve the problem. The second deliverance from exile is not just everybody like what's the pastor about to say next. <laughs> the second deliverance from exile is not just what we think it is, but it is that ultimately man would always need deliverance from exile until that final deliverance. And the final deliverance from exile is going to be when man is saved from sin. That's why he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Amen. The second deliverance, the exile, salvation from exile, exile there is a pointer to sin. It's a shadow of sin, in quotes. And God's deliverance of them from Israel is a pointer to that ultimate solution to the sin problem. Does that make sense? So, this is the connection. Or the first sin came by Adam, right? God has been looking for a solution. He's not looking for a solution. He had the solution. He had been planning it. So, you sinned now. There's a problem. Leave the garden. But I have a plan to save you. That plan is not going to come now. It's going to come soon. You sin again. I say, okay, go to exile. Exile is not the ultimate solution. But I also deliver you from exile. The repercussion of your sin is exile. But my deliverance is your salvation. Does that make sense? I'll say that again. The repercussion of your sin is what? Exile. But the solution is what? My salvation. But every time I save you from exile, that's not the real salvation I want to give you. The real salvation I want to give you is when Jesus finally comes and saves you from your sin. That's where you'll never have to go to exile again. That's where you'll never have to sin again. Does that make sense? Think of it like this. Sin leads to what? Exile. Who is the only person that can save you from? God, Jesus, yes. But guess what? Is he just coming to save you from exile? He needs to stop the sin. Because he would always go to exile, no matter what. So the problem is not to save you from exile. The problem is to save you from sin. So there is a theme in the Bible about exile, which is sin, exile, and salvation. And that is pointing to the actual... God has been telling a story of what he wants to do. I want to save you. I'm your deliverer. Every time you sin, you are in exile. Guess what? Exile is only a picture for our spiritual state when we sin. Meaning that since Adam sinned, mankind has been in exile from God. That's why they could not come to the presence of God. 
So you see that physical exile of Israel is only a pointer to mankind's spiritual state. Every time you rebel, I'm just going to use this story to show you your spiritual state. Your spiritual state is that the moment Adam sinned, he became separated from me. He's exiled from God. So it's the solution to save you from Babylon or the solution to save your soul. Are, are you getting it now? So ultimately, why the writer here, Luke, is re- able to reference this text about joy to them from God being able to save them from exile is because that exile is only a picture of our spiritual state that we are far from God. Ultimately, in Christ, we will be what? Reconciled to God. So God delivering them from exile is a picture to show us that ultimately God is going to deliver us from what? Sin. That's why Ezekiel can say God will give you a new heart, a new spirit. He will take away the stony heart from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Are you getting what I'm saying? Because at that point now, he's going to give you the Holy Ghost. What is the Holy Ghost going to do? Help you not to sin. Once you can't sin, there is no exam. Who does not understand? I want to repeat it one more time. Who does not understand? Confess now. Let me explain it. Listen, I have the... We have a few more minutes. I want to explain it clearer so you understand. Ask me your questions now. This is the final thing I wanted to teach before we go ahead. Remember, the Bible is a compendium of what? The plan, the provision, and the announcement of what? Of salvation. Meaning in the Old Testament, God planned it. In the Gospels, he provided it. In the epistles, it was announced. Does that make sense? You also remember that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament what? So when God was giving them lamb to kill, was he going to take away their sin? What was he doing? He was shadowing the plan that it would be true. Well, every time they rejected God and they went on exile, it was also God showing them a story that your sin would make you separate from me, but I'm the only one that can save you. It was also telling them a story that in Christ, I'm going to save you. Does that make sense now? So every time they referenced the exodus from Egypt now, to them it might have just been another deliverance but there are going to be two fulfillments yes God will deliver them from their captivity but it's also pointing to the fact that God will deliver them from sin and the exile from him which finally happened when Jesus came well let's finish Daniel chapter 9 let's read verse 17 to 19 just two verses left Let's read. I'm going to read. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ears and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation. And the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city, your people are called by your name. Amen.
So, God responds to this with the message from Daniel, and that's where we're going to start on Sunday. All right? Um, we're going to start with the response of Gabriel to this prayer. 9 verse 17 and to 19 was what I read now, right? No, 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 it was not the last part. No, sorry, it was not the last part. It's where we are stopping today. Ultimately, what I'm trying to show you is this. When you read the things in the Old Testament, you have to read it with respect to the full big picture of the book. But we're just going to spend some time, you know, giving thanks and just saying, um, thank you for your word, Lord, and we just pray that we're able to put it to practice every day. Just in one minute, let's do that very quickly. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of revelation through your word. Thank you for helping us see you in the Old Testament. Thank you for helping us understand that in spite of present troubles, you are in control and you will have the victory. And not only will we survive, we will thrive, we will flourish, even in exile. Thank you for helping us also see that the ultimate solution to the problem is in your son, Christ. Thank you for helping us understand that we were in exile, but now we're no longer in exile. We're part of your kingdom. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. Amen. Shall glory.